Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. There have been some happenings in the sport world recently that piqued my interest and caused me to want to talk to some folks. I taught sports sociology for years, so there's almost always something going on that catches my eye. But there have been some things recently that I wanted to explore further, like the NCAA's name, image, and likeness situation, the Major League Baseball lockout and collective bargaining resolution, and finally the large amount of public money being promised to fund the Buffalo Bills' new football stadium. As I looked for a thread to connect them all, it's obvious these all revolve around money, finances. So for part one of this post, I reached out to Andrew Zimbalist, and for part two, I spoke with Neil DeMouse. I've never known quite how to measure these things, but it's likely not a stretch to say that Andrew Zimbalist is the most well-known and respected sports economist in the United States. He's more than a sports economist, as he's done a lot of work in Latin America, but his sports work is what makes him a big gun in the world of sport today. His accolades and achievements are legion, too many to list, but I'll give a quick rundown. He received his Ph.D. from Harvard in the 1970s and has been a professor at Smith College ever since, where he's currently the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics. He served as a consultant to both Major League Baseball and for the Players Union at different times, as those two entities have danced through labor disputes so many times over the years. He's consulted for the NFL Players Association as well, and literally dozens of private and public sport entities as they navigate litigation. Just for shits and giggles, I'll post a link to part of his bio and let you scroll through all of his work. Oh, and he's published 28 books, one of which, Unpaid Professionals, Commercialization and Conflict in Big-Time College Sports, I used for years as required reading in my courses. More recently, he's the president-elect of the Drake Group, formerly known as the National Alliance of College Athletic Reform, whose mission is to defend academic integrity in higher education from the corrosive aspects of commercialized college sports. So with all that in mind, I sent him an email asking for 15 to 20 minutes of his time, which is my usual MO, and went about my day. Turns out, 10 minutes later, he wrote me back and said, how about 4 o'clock this afternoon? (laughs) Well, not one to mess around, this Professor Zimbalist. About 10 emails later, I had secured 20 minutes or so first thing the next morning, and I rapid-fired some questions at him. We began with the NCAA and why we should have college sports at all. I like sports, though not the way many of them are currently constituted, and I've heard people say let's strip it all down and essentially just have sporting activities like intramurals, thereby obviating the commercialization aspect. So I was curious as to what the benefits were. So I I think the benefits should be talked about as potential benefits. Um, they, They don't obtain, in my view, when you're, you're playing FBS level football or some other sports at FBS levels and, and the coaches uh, treat their, their student athletes as vehicles to, to win games and only to win games and to advance their careers. And, and hence, there's a lot of physical and emotional abuse of the athletes. But when they're done properly, as I think they are, for instance, at division, most Division three schools and other, some other schools as well, then, then I believe that there's a lot of evidence that shows that participating in collegiate athletics um, helps students develop a sense of teamwork, a sense of leadership, um, a sense of time management, goal setting. Um, and and if, particularly if you look at the impact for women athletes, uh, you, you see pretty clear evidence that there's a reduction in a variety of uh, un, undesirable attributes, uh, such, such as uh, smoking or recreational drugs or unwanted pregnancy, osteoporosis, 
breast cancer, all of that stuff is, is benefited uh, by participating in intercollegiate athletics. Now, could it be done with intramurals? Perhaps. Um, I think, however, with intramurals, it's because the, the level of resources and care uh, is, is reduced that there'd be less, less interest in it and less participation. Uh, so that, that would be my concern. Uh, the, the more you make it attractive in terms of resources that are available, I think the more people will participate. Uh, but uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's in the offing to move towards a, an intramural, a pure intramural model, but uh, there would be nothing wrong with that if that's the way we went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard too that female athletes are less likely to be victims of uh, sexual violence and abuse later in their lives as well, too. So there's, there's probably a whole lot of different uh, strengths there. What about um, so this the the NIL stuff, the name, image, and likeness? Um, if we start at say the U.S. Supreme Court Alston case, uh, you've written with the Drake Group or talked with the Drake Group. What do we want our college sports systems to be doing? What do we want our colleges to be doing? What what do we want them to look like? We need a coherent package of reform. So in your mind, what is that? What does that look like? If this path is not good, like where's this path going? And if it's not good, what is a better path? And or how do we get there? Yeah. So I I think that for myself and for the Drake Group that that we start with the premise that college sports has been conceived of as an extra extracurricular activity like it is to play in the school orchestra or be a thespian in school theater or in student government. Um, and that it's, it's evolved into much more than that. Uh, so in, in, in our perspective, college sports, and this is also in the NCA constitution and bylaws, college, college sports is supposed to be subordinate to the educational mission of a school. Uh, so education should always be primary, and it's not that. Um, and so we've we've evolved a system that is highly commercialized uh, and generates, if you add it all up, $18, $18 billion a year, the whole enterprise of college sports. Wow. And of course, uh, the, the largest sum of, of recipients of that money are the coaches and, and uh, athletic directors and conference commissioners. Uh, overwhelmingly individuals who are white and male um, and uh, the the producers who are the, st- the student athletes or the college athletes, I don't particularly like the term student athlete, mm-hmm. the college athletes um, are getting short trip. They don't even, they, they, they don't get the, the, the part of the bargain, which, which is a good education. A few mm-hmm. do, but generally they don't, mm-hmm. they don't get uh, adequate medical care either while they're in college or for the rest of their lives. Uh, so we think the system has to be rebalanced. It has to be rebalanced towards greater emphasis on health and safety and on education. Uh, and that insofar as the, the money-making enterprise continues, um, we should bring some of it under control. Like one of the things that could be done, we believe, is to grant the NCAA or some other national governing organization, because the NCAA doesn't do anything right these days. Right. Never, never did anything particularly right, but right. it's more than more so today than ever before. Yeah. Uh, give that give the national governing organization a limited and conditional antitrust exemption, so that they can put price controls on things like coaches' salaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, why should a coach who who probably has no no more than a bachelor's degree or in some cases a master's degree uh, be getting? $5 million, $10 million a year just from the school, not in counting, not counting outside income, which might be 10 or 20 times more than, than the college president and 30 or 40 times more than the highest paid full professor 
in an institution that's tax exempt and is supposed to be about education. Right. It sends the wrong message, message and it's exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, ne- there needs to be a restructuring of the whole system. Uh, you need to go back to the fundamentals and, and do it all over again. And what the Drake Group in particular has been endorsing, although we're working with members of Congress around uh, particular and more narrow bills, what the main thing that we're pushing with members of Congress, and I, I think that there's some interest, is uh, a national congressional committee or commission to look at the reform of college sports. And that commission would uh, not be doing this piecemeal, but we look at the overall design of college sports and then make recommendations and, and move on from there. It's, it's a difficult thing to have happen in, in today's Congress for all sorts of reasons. And we're not expecting a bill to pass this year. Hopefully, though, um, as, 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 as the world gets out of the morass that it's in, right, and right. we perhaps can get away from the pandemic um, constraints, uh, that maybe next year something, something productive can happen. But this, this, there's no, there are no simple answers here. This has gone down the commercialization and exploitation road too far to simply tweak it and expect that we'll come out whole. Is it the fox guarding the chicken coop or would, or, or, or can we really expect that, that these people will listen and, and make changes? Well, I think we have, there are a number of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle um, who are interested in profound reform. Okay. And, and the model that we're suggesting is a model that was in fact applied to the um, IOC or, or in, in prior, prior to the, uh, the 1979 act, um, which, well, there was actually, it was an act, I think it was in 1976, that established a congressional commission. It looked at the question of Olympic athletics and their organization in the country, because the AAU was, was organizing it and doing a very, very bad job, along with some corruption. And so they had a commission that looked into it, and that commission established the U.S. Olympic Committee, the USOC, which is now the USOPC. Um, and we would like to see something like that. Let's study this thing and look at it holistically. Let's let's think about it in terms of public policy and what we would like college sports to be. College sports in the United States is sui generis. There's no other country in the world that has college sports the way we do. Um, and so we're saying let's let's look at this all over again and get it right this time. Related to that is the gender issue, and you've written about Title IX um, and some of the statistics you give. Really amazing the difference in, in the sports opportunities and scholarship funds and things between men and women. In this new model you envision, is the goal to have women's sports move into these powerful and wealthier positions, or is it to kind of rein in men and bring their position back down to a more equilibrium? Well, I, I think what we, you know, with regard to Title IX, 54.3% of undergraduates in this country are women, 54.3%. 44% of athletes, student athletes are women. Um, Title IX has not, not been complied with. Right. Uh, and if you go down the list of all the other things besides participation rates, like scholarship, access to scholarship dollars, uh, spending on recruitment, spending on travel, spending on <clears throat> on per diem, spending on training, spending on recruiting, all of those things. <clears throat> the women are at 15 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent. They're behind in everything. And, and the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education, which is supposed to be overseeing the implementation of Title IX, has really let the ball drop. Uh, they, they're a little bit more active under 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 Clinton. They've been somewhat more active under under and better funded under Democratic presidents, but 
across the board. It's been, uh, it, it hasn't been an effective organization and, and it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And so what we're in favor of is, is expanding participation opportunities and resources for women's sports. It's starting to happen. And we're, we're noticing that the more equalized the, the publicity of women's sports is advanced, um, the, the more interest there is, the more media coverage there is, and there's a snowballing effect that feeds upon itself. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're interested in seeing. Uh, should, should it all be met by cutting back on male sports? No, I don't think so. Because what, what we need to do is run the sports the right way. And if they're run the right way, then it benefits the, the participants. Mm-hmm. Part of running it the right way means that you don't spend 60 hours a week doing your sport right. because you're in school to, to, be, to be, a, be students. Yeah. Um, and, and so, again, you've got to look at the whole thing and change the whole thing all at once. It's very hard to change piece by piece. Sure. Be yeah. Successful. yeah. Jay Coakley, the sports sociologist, said sports experiences have been for men and by men for 100 years. Let's give women 100 years before we decide whether sports, women's sports are worthwhile or not. You know, like, in other words, they haven't had we any of that. Funding. We won't need 100 years. No. Let me tell you that. Jay, Jay is uh, overstating the case, but considerably. I think one of the interesting examples that we have in our country already um, from, from professional sports is women's and men's tennis. And the Grand Slam, the four Grand Slams tournaments, the prize money for women and men is the same. Uh, and if you look at the television ratings, it depends on which year and which, which stars are playing. But basically, the television ratings have been basically the same. Uh, and the attendance at, at the at the matches are are similar. And why is that? Well, I think a large reason why that's true is because the men and the women get equal publicity around the Grand Slams. And why is that? It's because they play at the same time in the same place. Right. Same it's an way. integrated. It's an integrated tournament. Mm-hmm. So it'd be impossible to to promote the men and not promote the women at the same time, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so here's an example where the men and the women are getting pretty much equal publicity. And, and lo and behold, the popularity of the, of the women's competition is, is at the same level as it is with the men. So when there's an example, give, give them the, 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 pop, the publicity that they deserve and, and they show their success. Yeah, yeah. okay. Before our time was up, I wanted to ask Andy his thoughts on the Major League Baseball lockout and subsequent new collective bargaining agreement that allowed the season to start on time, even though spring training was truncated. Of the four major American sports, baseball might be the one he's written about the most, so I knew he follows the ins and outs closer than most people do. For my part, I see it as a basic labor issue, typical in some ways and atypical in others. The owners ultimately have the power and want to maximize revenue, and the players are trying to get the most they can for their labor particularly since their careers are relatively short, just as we teach in our business schools across the country. When no new collective bargaining agreement was reached, the owners locked the players out for a few weeks, and there was a lot of mudslinging and hand-wringing before both sides made some concessions and agreed to a new deal. Even though the players are the product, the owners seem to have the most power. Jeff Passan, a senior baseball writer at ESPN, wrote that if we got rid of all the current professional baseball players and replaced them with the next best group of players, we would see a demonstrable difference in the product on the field. 
However, if we replace the 30 millionaire and billionaire owners with any other collection of millionaire and billionaire business folks, we'd see no difference in the game, and in fact, it might even be beneficial for the sport. So when I posed my question, I framed it from the perspective of the players ultimately getting screwed like labor often does. Professor Zimblist, however, viewed things quite differently. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure that I, I buy into the premise of your question. I, look, I mean, uh, and, and it's complicated. There are sure, sure. lots of elements to this, but, you know, baseball of the major, major team sports we have in the United States, baseball is the only one without a salary cap, right? Right. Uh, baseball is the only one where there, there aren't limits to the number of years you can get in a contract. Uh, baseball players get roughly today, the major league players roughly today get 50% of, of, of baseball revenues. Okay. Uh, that, and, that, and then there's another 5 or 6% that if you include bonuses and minor league salaries, player bonuses and minor league salaries, uh, there's another 5 or 6% that goes to players who are not in the major leagues but are in the, the minor leagues. So overall, the players are getting 55 56%. In the other sports, in football, it's about 48%. Um, in, in basketball, it's 50%. In hockey, it's under 50%. Um, so, you know, I, the notion that baseball players are getting screwed, and, and keep in mind that we just, obviously, we've been through two years of the pandemic, and uh, and teams, although some teams re- recovered last year somewhat, uh, teams have lost quite a bit of money, tens of millions of dollars in the last couple of years. So characterizing this as the players are getting screwed once again, I, I don't know if, if that's fair or not. You know, clearly owners, mo- most owners are making a good deal of money in baseball, and some of that money is coming in the form of long-term capital gains, appreciation, and franchise values. And, and there should be ways to, uh, to, to get some of that long-term appreciation in, in the players' hands. But look, uh, there, in this particular agreement, there were a number of benefits that went to the players that were not there before. And I, I, my, my guess is that if, even though, the, I, as I estimated, the, these various benefits will amount to about $200 million additionally in player salaries okay. over and above what they would otherwise have been. Okay. It's also likely because of the, the growth, the potential growth of gambling revenue uh, and the potential growth in streaming revenue and some other factors that the owners will be able to increase their revenue by $400 million. And so that will preserve the player share at around 50%. Okay. I, I think what, to me, what's most problematic is, is not whether the players get 51% or 49% or some other percentage, leaving off the, the minor league share of this. What's problematic is, is that the two sides need to communicate better, sure. uh, not, not just in the few weeks around the end of the old or the few okay. months around the old CBA, the termination of the old CBA, but it has to happen on a regular basis so they can talk about how how best to develop their sport and grow the sport mm-hmm. uh, and take advantages of opportunities to restructure the sport in ways that would be productive for everybody. Baseball has a lot of longstanding issues around inequality and, and competitive imbalance and some other things. Mm-hmm. And I think that those issues have gotten short shrift. There are better designs for a CBA that have not been taken advantage of because they do a lot of crisis bargaining and crisis right. deal-making at the last minute. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that's the main thing. And it was, and it was sad as an, as an outsider, although I, talked, I was regularly talking to people on, on both sides, 
And I have worked in the past, both for the Players Association and the Commissioner's Office in collective bargaining in baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there were there are opportunities to redesign some incentives in the system that would have made baseball operate much better. Okay. Uh, and and they they didn't have the the, the long term vision and the long term planning ability. Um, then and they they lost that, and so they they did a lot of fighting. They they caused a lot of anxiety for fans who were losing losing. They thought they'd lose more of the season, but we you know now all it is is a one week delay sure, and sure. maybe some additional injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So there, it's a lot of the, these are adults. These are adults who are on both sides of the table are very 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 wealthy, and one would hope that there could be some maturity going forward and better communication. So, so some of these more nuanced issues can could be uh, dealt with positively. My final question for Andy revolves around the proposed new Buffalo Bills football stadium. Public monies being used to fund private stadiums has always seemed to me an example of the old saying, socialism for the rich, capitalism for the masses. Citizens of New York will be on the hook for $850 million of the estimated $1.4 billion cost of building the stadium, but with long-term maintenance costs factored in, it's expected to be over $1 billion. This at a time when the state's most recent budget sliced $800 million from the Children and Family Services Department. Additionally, the bills are owned by Terry Pagula and his wife. Terry's worth $5.8 billion, largely as a result of his fracking investments, and his proposed share of the costs is well below the state's responsibility, even though he'll pocket the profits. This is an old and contentious issue in pro sports. Well, first of all, there's not going to be a referendum in New York about this. Uh, the, the representatives of the people in Albany, legislators, will, will have a chance to pass this as part of a, a much, much, much larger budget. Um, look, it, it, it's a complicated situation. On the one hand, it's complicated because uh, and, and different because you have you're you're in a situation where the governor of the state, the, the interim governor, with what she is right now. The interim mm-hmm. governor state is from Buffalo and she's a big Bills, Bills fan. Um, and you're, you're basically asking the rest of New York state to go along with this plan that, that, that requires $880 million of state money over 30 years. Um, most of it is up front to build a stadium at that, that, that amount, as I think you alluded to, is $600 million. But you're asking the entirety of New York State. You're asking Eastern New York State, upstate. You're asking Westchester. You're asking New York City proper. You're asking Long Island to subsidize a stadium in Buffalo. Right. Uh, that's complicated. Yeah. Uh, you know, having, if, if there is a benefit, in fact, um, to having the bills in Buffalo, it's not an economic benefit. It's a localized community benefit. And I believe that there is such a benefit, but it's very localized. Mm-hmm. And that and that being the case, I, I think there's, there's a real public finance question, an equity question about why why people in, in Syosset, Long Island, or you t- pick your town, um, or in New Rochelle, Westchester, New York, why should they be financing a community benefit in Buffalo? Well, to some degree, if you're, you're, you're all part of the same political entity, uh, you should all be having budgets that benefit each other, but that should be based upon uh, preconceived or pre-agreed upon notions about how, how you distribute the, the, the the revenues across the state that it shouldn't be there. Oh, let's, let's 
advance almost a billion dollars, especially just to benefit Buffalo, unless it's part of a larger deal that says Buffalo gets a certain percent of our resources, and this could be part of that Buffalo pie. But if it's part of the Buffalo pie, that means the Buffalo is not going to get state money for, for other things that they need, like state roads and so on and so forth. Right. But the reality is that, it, that there are a few exceptions, but, but building professional sports stadiums, according to the scholarship that's been done by independent academics, independent economists who aren't paid by one side or the other, uh, we have found that uh, um, the, the, the typical stadium deal is not beneficial to the economy, and it can create a very substantial fiscal benefit, excuse me, a, a fiscal hole in the budget. And, you know, th there are a lot of very specific questions ab about about the Buffalo bill that I don't I don't know if we have time to go into them or, or not. But, the, you know, there, there are elements of, of of the of the so far, it's it's, it's just a memorandum of understanding it, it will it will be tweaked and change. Yeah. Um, and, and what we know is that there are going to be massive cost overruns because the project will be expanded and there'll be other factors operative. Uh, such as the inflationary surge that we're experiencing now in the United States, that will will raise the cost well above mm -hmm. the current estimate of one point four billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Might raise it by ten percent. Might raise it by forty or fifty percent. Yeah. Um, and so this this is this is an undertaking that needs to be looked at much more carefully. There, the devil is in the details, and more of the details really should be provided to the public before the the, the vote in the legislature happens next week. Um, but, you know, all expectations are that none of that's going to happen. And so there'll be one more one more time that a stadium bill is approved uh, that there, there's not proper information or oversight about from the public. Right. Yeah, that's that's tough. And, you know, this is a billionaire owner and paying less than the public is paying for a private business, essentially. You know, so I guess people say whatever that localized cultural, you know, currency they get from having a team there is enough, you know, but I, I, I think, you know, I'm glad you pointed out the economic part because I think most people walking down the street assume it's good for the economy locally when, you know, like you said, the studies show that it's not. Okay. Thank you very much. I know you got to split. Okay. Pleasure right. to talk to you. I got to run. Thank you very much. Bye. Take yeah, care. You've been listening to an interview with Andy Zimbalist on our social landscape, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. Thanks to Andy for carving out some time with celerity after I reached out. He's pulled in a million ways to Sunday, so I'm grateful we could work it out. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is the first part of a two-part post, so keep your eyes peeled for part two in the next few weeks where I chat with writer Neil DeMoss to go a little bit further into the public financing of stadiums. He's the author of a classic book on the topic called Field of Schemes, and he's been researching the issue for over 30 years. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology. So for me, the goal is to engage academic and non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world. But it doesn't work if I'm the only one talking. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and a password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. I'll post a link to Andy's bio on my page and tell you that the music was Home at Last by Steely Dan. 
Finally, if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, email me at jr at our socialandscape.com. And thanks for listening. <music>